16 years old, we shot in the back nine times, 16 times total. That's his daughter. There's a few things on my mind. We'd like some transparency in the investigation and we'd like some arrests made. I've got, we've got eyewitnesses. The, the cop did not have to shoot him down like that. It's time for some justice, you know? But look at it like this, these cops are working. 80 hours a week almost doing double shifts. They're walking around like zombies with guns. Even bus drivers have a limit on the amount of hours they can work. You can't expect these deputies to be functional when they work two shifts. You can't expect it. They need to have a limit on their overtime so that they can think more clearly. This year, they're $160 million over budget on overtime alone. You cannot expect these deputies to function when they're walking around like zombies. They should limit their overtime. There's a lot of things that need change, but, but transparency and putting and holding these people to the fire. Two-tier justice system don't make sense. I throw a rock, I'm going to jail. I'm sitting underneath Twin Towers. They shoot down our sons, they go back to work the next day. They back to work. Hey y'all, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Scroll with your weekly knock activism wrap-up. Today we're going to be talking about how the entire state is on fucking fire and a couple of other things. So let's just go ahead and dive straight into things. Uh, how's it going, Bushido? Uh, it's going all right. I spent my weekend taking a backcountry rescue course with the Red Cross, which oh, nice. I know I've harped on this like before, uh, but I'm going to do it again, especially in light of like all the shit that we're talking about today. Uh, if you can, go get yourself trained in first aid. Like, it's not super expensive. It's not a huge time commitment. It's really good stuff to have. Because, like, being able to help your comrades and help yourself and just, like, be a useful person in an emergency or even just, like, a daily life situation, really, really good. And, like, most of these skills aren't that hard to pick up. It's not really complicated stuff. Um, but it's really good to know. And it's, you know, not a huge time commitment. A couple hours out of your day for a CPR and first aid class, maybe a whole weekend if you want to take like a more intense backcountry rescue course or like a lifeguarding course. But again, none of this stuff is like really high bar to entry and you should just know how to do it. So if you get the chance, track down your nearest first aid class through the, uh, through the Red Cross, go take that class. Your CPR certifications last for two years. So you're going to be taking these classes like every couple of years just to keep up with new techniques and new technologies, yeah. but like really, really, really worth it. So, uh, that's kind of my, you know, start off for the weekend is, or start off for the week rather is, uh, go learn how to bandage a wound and give somebody CPR and maybe you'll save a life one day. Yeah, I actually had uh, just heard someplace that somebody was making a, a reference to it, but apparently it's, uh, they've changed things since I was, you know, I used to be a lifeguard when I was in high school, and I remember the the way that they had taught us to do CPR. It didn't actually involve any any musical references, but I understand that they're now using uh, staying alive as a reference for what the pace should be when you're doing uh, chest compressions, right? Something like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's, you know, kind of... It's a little bit weird when you learn this stuff because a lot of it is very uncomfortable for the person oh, you're treating in like a life-threatening so. situation. Yeah, like having done the Heimlich maneuver on someone before, like not fun. not fun for the person receiving it, but you know what? They lived. Yes. But when, when you're doing chest compressions, you will most likely be breaking people's ribs. Like 
it is not going to be a fun situation. Yeah, because I mean, with the physics of it, you know what you're doing with the chest compressions, and people are under the like impression that you're you're you know uh, making the heartbeat, and that's not what you're doing. What no. you're actually doing is compressing the lungs to force oxygen through the circulatory system, so that you're keeping everything oxygenated, so that the body doesn't like start going into necrosis and dying, and you don't deprive the brain of oxygen. So essentially, what you're doing is pushing as hard as you can on somebody's rib cage, and like. Uh, chest area to try and force oxygen through their body. And that's what the rescue breaths are for. Um, and like the little, you know, squeeze bag, if you've seen that. But it's yeah. it's something that can save a life and and literally keep someone from dying for, you know, hours at a time if it has to be done that long. Yeah. Um, but again, like, not really hard to learn, but you got to learn the, the right way to do it. Absolutely. So, uh, and, you know, we're recording this right now uh, late because you were off doing that and I was uh, holed up sick. So uh, stay healthy out there, folks, and uh, dodge the do skip the dodgy food. <laughs> Yeah, that, that seems to have been the case. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I missed out on a, a lot of stuff that was going on. Uh, we had the uh, People's Action um, was hosting a, you know, which is Ground Games' parent organization at the national level. Uh, People's Action was hosting a presidential forum in Vegas, and a whole bunch of folks from Power, our sister org, as well as some folks from Ground Game others, uh, hopped on a bus and headed out there to go, attend this forum and there's actually a really great clip that's been circulating about one of our uh, one of our fellow organizers Tabitha uh, basically bringing some heat on uh, on Andrew Yang when it comes to how UBI uh, works together with our current housing situation so uh, some good stuff going on and I was very very sad that I was not able to make it uh, to those events, but you know, sometimes when you eat some dodgy food, you end up in a bad situation. Um, anyway, so one thing before we jump into how everything, literally everything in the state seems to be on fire right now. We, I mean, there was we got news of a fire breaking out just minutes before recording this, and it seems fortunately that that one has been wrapped up and is under control. But uh, there was a press release that went out in the wake of the tick fire, which we're not even going to really go into the details of that one um, too much right now. But when the tick fire was happening up in uh, the Santa Clarita region, we had a, a press release that came out from the Los Angeles County Department of Consumer and Business Affairs. And you're probably wondering why it is that we're talking about this, but this is incredibly important for uh, everyday Angelinos to be aware that there these things exist. So this press release, or media advisory, whatever it is that they wanted to call it, uh, was basically telling owners and operators of rental housing that they must stay in compliance uh, with state and and Los Angeles County laws which protect consumers from price gouging. This is something that I was not aware that we had, but I am thrilled to see that it does exist, and it is incredibly important in these kinds of situations because, uh, I mean, I've, I've heard all of these stories, uh, you know, anecdotal about how in times of hurricanes, suddenly the, uh, you know, the not the Walmart or whatever necessarily, but like the store on the corner, instead of the flat of water costing you a few bucks, suddenly it's 25 or 30 bucks because there is no new incoming supply of bottled water, and therefore it is now a precious commodity that they feel that they can just charge whatever the hell it is that they want. 
So uh, the protection here that we're talking about goes into effect every time that a state of emergency is declared, whether that's done at the county or at the state level. And uh, I'm just going to go ahead and quote some sections from that media advisory uh, just to make sure that everybody is aware of this because it's an incredibly important thing to protect us from predatory landlords, uh, hotel hotel op- operators or whoever it is that are uh, trying to victimize people who have already been the victims of whatever the natural emergency or man-made emergency, whatever it is that caused the state of emergency to be declared. So, quote, in most circumstances, businesses may not increase the price of goods or services more than 10% for consumers affected by an emergency. This prohibition also applies to rental housing, hotel and motel rooms, and short-term rentals. This price gouging protection is currently in effect across all of Los Angeles County, not just the areas affected by the tick complex fire or the recent Saddle Ridge fire near Silmar and Porter Ranch. They continue. DCBA staff is monitoring, uh, by the way, DCBA is the uh, acronym for the Department of Consumer and Business Affairs. Uh, DCBA staff is monitoring listed prices of rental housing in surrounding communities and working with local prosecuting agencies to further investigate reports of alleged price gouging. If you believe you are being improperly overcharged for good services or housing, save your records and receipts and contact DCBA at 1-800-593-8222. Again, that's one 800 593 Keep those receipts, uh, contact DCBA, and get yourself protected. So anyone who they catch violating these price gouging laws uh, is subject to fines of up to $10,000 or a year in jail or both. And these protections will remain in effect for 30 days after the declared state of emergency and can be renewed at the discretion uh, of DCBA and other county officials. Yeah, so it's definitely something to keep an eye out on, especially as the evacuation situations in California are, like, moving fast and are incredibly fluid. Uh, Up in the Kincaid fire, they have literally had to evacuate the evacuation centers. Like, people are getting pushed farther and farther from their homes, and, like, with only a few minutes left to evacuate, people aren't really leaving with everything that they need uh, to you know, survive for more than a couple of days, if if that. You know, it's hard to carry that much food and water with you, um, especially because people don't really plan for this stuff. We kind of always assume that society is going to be there uh, to provide. And at this point, like, things are getting super scary. So I guess we're just going to dive into the fires, which, yeah. as you mentioned, uh, it's really hard to keep up with. You know, I woke up this morning uh, with news of the Getty fire splashing across my screen. Uh, a couple hours later, the Oak fire broke out. Uh, there's also been a fire at Griffith Park earlier this weekend. Uh, Unfortunately, very quickly contained, but like this is happening at an incredibly alarming rate. Um, And I hope everyone in LA is staying safe and listening to evacuation orders and like has some sort of a plan. Like if you don't have a plan and a bug out bag, uh, when you catch your breath after this round of fires, get one, like get one now. Yeah, I mean, I, I like to tell myself that by living in, you know, in the heart of downtown L.A., I'm probably not going to be subject to any of these kinds of evacuations because there just isn't, you know, the kind of scrub that is necessary for these kind of fires to really move. But when you're looking at these kind of um, the, the gusts of wind, I mean, what they're seeing up in Kincaid right now, uh, up in Sonoma, which, the, I mean, we're talking about millions of people who have had to be evacuated uh, and you know, uh, thousands of homes that have been destroyed at this point, and 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 tons and tons of of areas that are just completely devastated. 
these winds were gusting at like up to like 80 miles an hour or something like that, pushing this blaze along. And there's really not that much can, that can stand in the way of the heat and the force of this wind that is pushing these fires forward. So, I, I mean, if I think basically if, if I'm going to be in danger here in downtown L.A., then like there's there are a lot of other things going on and it's going to be kind of immaterial whether I've got a bug out bag. But uh, no, it's really solid advice, especially for anybody who's living anywhere near these you know hillsides that are some of the most lovely areas in Los Angeles to live in. It's incredibly important to be prepared to evacuate at a moment's notice in this time of year. Uh, and one thing I want to flag before we, yeah, we yeah. get into the fire is just to kind of like tie this off is, you know, one of the reasons that Cal Fire has their like neighborhood response teams mm-hmm. uh, that you can train for and like you can go train with uh, the L.A. Fire Department and learn how to be like basically a block captain or community captain that can lead disaster response if, you know, a major earthquake or some sort of natural or man-made disaster hits uh, is Years ago, like after the Northridge fire, well, around that time, most of the co- the food cold storage moved out of Los Angeles and moved out to the Inland Empire in San Bernardino. You know, if the freeways are broken, if you're not able to get food into the city of Los Angeles, it's going to be a week before we can reestablish the civilization that we're used to. So how do you survive that time? And it's something to think about, not just for fires, but like for earthquakes and stuff. And that like, honestly, I'm not much of a prepper, uh, but at the same time, like you should have the idea that you could be left alone in LA to fend for yourself for a significant period of time and caring about three days worth of water and canned food on you is a bit burdensome, but it's better than not having that with you. So take this as an opportunity to start planning like what you're going to do should you have to evacuate or should you lose power, should a major earthquake hit and you're forced to like figure out how to feed yourself for three days because literally nothing is open and social services are and and you know police and fire services are caught up doing other stuff and handling bigger concerns than just what every individual is doing to keep themselves alive. So uh, with that kind of on our mind and not to be too scare tactic-y with it. Uh, Let's talk about these fires in California, which by the time we're done recording, things will have changed. So by the time you're listening to this podcast, uh, things will have definitely changed even more. But we want to give you kind of a breakdown of what's going on across the state, uh, how we're responding to it, uh, what kind of emergency evacuations are in place, and what people are going to be able to do, and when they might be able to go back home, um, and also how long these Santa Ana winds are going to last to keep fanning these flames. Yeah. So the top headline over the L.A. Times website, like literally right now, is, quote, thousands flee growing Getty blaze in L.A., millions without power in Northern California. And that that really just sets the tone like we we are in the middle of a climate emergency. This is the new normal that we have to deal with. And we need to like take this shit seriously and start making some significant changes to how we operate as a state. So. Let's just go ahead and dive right into like the Kincaid fire up here in or up north in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area in Sonoma County. Uh, a Pacific Gas and Electric Company, so our, our favorite people, PG&E, uh, they had a transmission tower that malfunctioned somewhere near where the suspected origin site is for this fire. 
uh, and the uh, state regulators are going to be looking into this. Uh, they found this out from PG&E back on Thursday. Uh, quote, PG&E said it became aware of an outage about 9.20 p.m. Wednesday on a 230,000 volt transmission line. When the line relayed and did not reclose, quote, according to report, from the company filed with the California Public Utilities Commission. The report pegged the incident location as near Kincaid Road and Burned Mountain Road, which is where state officials say the, the fire started minutes later, end quote. So, and this was pointed out to uh, PG&E workers by, I believe, uh, 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 some sort of a state employee who was in the area kind of watching for fires and stuff. Um, and they found a burned out uh, and malfunctioning jumper, uh, which kind of transfers power from one line to another line. Uh, so it's still not clear exactly what happened, but it was clear very early on that this was another man-made fire. Absolutely. And so this is what's really frustrating is that this is coming in the in the wake of the fact that we've been hearing about these massive power outages that have been you know going all over the place up in the in the bay area near sacramento uh heading down into like san jose i believe uh it's just it's absurd because this like an, a, a further quote that they you know i'm pulling this right now from the san francisco chronicle uh the like I, i'm just at, i'm baffled with this quote the company has told the Chronicle that transmission lines of that voltage were turned on when the fire started, even though PG&E turned off electricity to lower voltage distribution lines in the area because of high fire danger, end quote. Why the fuck would you leave the 230,000 volt transmission lines active when you're turning off the other lower voltage distribution lines that are going to be sending power to people's homes and, you know, helping, to be, helping people to be able to evacuate in the case of a fire? Like, this... Seems like an incredible oversight by PG&E, if this is really what was going on here, to leave these extremely high voltage lines running because that's, you know, you get the biggest sparks when you've got the highest voltage. And these winds are, it's, these winds are, are serious, serious business. And from what I understand, the the, the folks at, at PG&E are claiming that they didn't, uh, understand that like the severity of the winds that were going to be uh called for in the forecast or something like that and that basically means that they they just misread the situation so they've been shutting off power seemingly pretty indiscriminately across uh huge swaths of the state and and, and shutting down people's ability to you know conduct normal everyday you know business of their lives but at the same time they just completely missed the fact that this extremely high voltage uh, conduit needed to be shut off in an area that is now believed to potentially have been the start uh, of this massive, massive fire that it is, is just, you know, we're looking at like all of wine count, all of wine country up in, uh, or not all of, but like a huge portion of the wine country up in Sonoma uh, County and the neighboring areas just being completely devastated. Like, uh, a very good friend of mine from college is from an area right in the heart of all of this. Uh, and the, the town, uh, like in the evacuation map on, on the front page of the LA Times this week, like his, the town that he's from of just a couple of thousand people, uh, Guerneville, it's like literally that is the name of the thing that is right smack in the middle of the evacuation zone. Uh, on this map of Sonoma County and, and what has been impacted by this fire. And so there, these, these fires are hitting extremely close to home for 
millions of people across the state as as this is you know the this the, the scope of everything continues to expand and people are losing everything to this and i mean we're going to be looking at some really a, a long hard time trying to recover from this and it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with with PG&E after all this because like we we're going to dive more into exactly what's yeah, going we'll on Yeah, we'll chat about them later. later but it's it's some wild stuff so yeah. Yeah, no, I, I lived up in this area for about six months, uh, back around 2009. Um, I was right outside of Geyserville, which is one of the first cities that yeah. was evacuated. Uh, I would ride my bike through the Alexander River Valley and the Russian River Valley, uh, which is where these wineries are situated, uh, out towards Healdsburg and all these other kind of like small towns that are scattered out there. And one of the things that's good about this, as opposed to like the campfire and the Tubbs fire, which ripped through Santa Rosa proper, is that these are fairly... Uh, unpopulated areas. The houses are large. They have a lot of acreage. So you don't have a lot of people densely packed, but at the same time, it's hard to get into and out of there. Uh, during, I believe it was the Tubbs fire, uh, there was a, there's a, a wild animal park, kind of like a, a, a safari type park in the middle of Santa Rosa wine country, which is very weird, but I'm not going to get into that too much. Um, but that was just down the hill from the house I was living at. Like, literally, the house I was at was at the end of the power lines. Like, the last power pole fed a line directly to the house, and then there was nothing that went out towards the north, towards Lake County. Um, and it was, you know, I, I don't know if that house is still standing. Um, I don't know if the people that I was living with, like, I, believe, I know that they're okay, but I don't know how much of their property was damaged. At the same time, everyone who lived up there took care to clear their properties, and the county was very good about sending out inspectors and letting people know, like, hey, you have to clear this underbrush. Hey, you need to move this back at least a quarter mile from your property. Like, they were very big on trying to protect the properties that were there. At the same time, it's just wilderness. Like, there's only so much you can control, and one of the big problems we have now as the climate crisis escalates is that relative humidity is incredibly low. Absolutely. So that means that you can combust material without it actually being touched by flame. Like, it can just get so hot that stuff combusts because it's reached its chemical reactive point. And when you have this dry tinder and these dry foliage and trees that just stretch for miles and miles and miles, that cascades very quickly. Um, and that's how these fires, you know, jump freeways and stuff, is that they create such a heat front that it causes things to combust on the other side of like a five-lane or six-lane freeway. It, yeah. yeah, which is really scary to think it's about. Terrifying. And then if you add into that 100-mile-an-hour wind gusts that can drive embers for a good mile or so while they're still flaming, like... These are incredibly yeah. scary conditions, and, some, um, and it's else, one that, like, I was just going to say yeah. something else to like to really think about with that is that if the heat front in front of one of these fast-moving fires is so hot that it's causing things to spontaneously combust, and can you imagine what it's like for the people who are trying to flee in that heat front, or for the firefighters that are being, you know, put in the middle of harm's way, fighting that blaze, and then on top of all that. This keeps coming up as a thing that people, you know, it's an uncomfortable reality for us to face here in California. But you mentioned this on Twitter and it, it does seem to come up every yeah. every time it happens, but it still doesn't gain nearly enough fucking traction. We have convicted felons, people who are in jail, who are being pushed to fight these fires and being paid what a dollar an hour to put themselves in the middle 
they're, they're, yeah, they're paid a base of $2 uh, oh, a sorry. day. $2, and $2 I, I, a day. Ooh. Yeah. And a dollar an hour for their work. And the, the thing is, like, they aren't just working during fire season. Like, when you're in a fire camp, and this is what's really fucked up about this whole system is, and it, we've talked about this more in depth, uh, but mm. it, to kind of go over it again, is it, when you're in a fire camp, this is actually kind of a placement that a lot of people who are in prison kind of want because you yeah. get to be outside, you get Better to do me. other work, you're fixing trails, you're clearing brush. Yeah, you're not just working during fire season. They work... Uh, pretty much, you know, 12 months out of the year. And the state saves hundreds of millions of dollars on their labor versus like a unionized firefighter. Uh, what's really messed up about it, though, is even though you're making better money than most other like jobs that are available to people who have been convicted of crimes, is you're paying higher prices for your goods when you're at the fire camps. Yeah. Like, Things like oh, your geez. food or your supplies, like your regular personal supplies, cost you more money out there. So it's not like it's... The state doesn't reward you for putting your life no. at risk to protect primarily wealthy homes. In fact, you get punished in a lot of ways, one of which is that when you get out, the vast majority of people who serve as firefighters on these uh, conservation camp crews, uh, or fire camp crews, rather, are not allowed to become regular firefighters yeah, no, because they, of their criminal record. Exactly. It's, it's, it's against the law for the fire agencies to be hiring people who basically have all of the experience and training necessary because the circumstances under which they gained that experience is that they were, you know, as, as convicts. Like, this entire system is so screwed up, and it's, it's one of those things that really just needs to be accounted for in this. And when we talk about things like a Green New Deal, where it's like, what, what kind of jobs are people talking about needing to be done? It's like, this, this is exactly the kind of jobs that deserve a fucking living wage and need to be filled and we need to be empowering people especially those who have gone through this system or who have been rehabilitated and who have put their lives on the line for this stuff before like there's no reason at all why they should not be given the opportunity to continue to you know protect these communities and protect our our uh, resources in, in this manner when this is, you know, they've trained for it, they've done it before, like, why are we continuing to punish people after they get out for this? Like, that I'm, I'm sorry that we kind of like dove off on a on a tangent no, on this no, one, it's, but I, it's, I think it's, it's incredibly it's, relevant. No, it's, it's really important to talk about and also to talk about the fact that like your regular wildland firefighter, these guys aren't making, you know, 30 or $40 an hour. They're no. making 10 to $15 an no. hour. So even prison slave labor then is like, 10% of what you're paying a regular firefighter out in the wildlands, but those folks aren't making great money either, and that's a problem we need to talk about also, 100%. because that's why a lot of our institutional knowledge is then leaving and going to private contracting. Like when we saw Kim and Kanye hiring their own private firefighters, those are folks who worked for Cal Fire and then realized they can make 40 or $50 an hour on the private market instead of working for the state. Yep. And that's something we really do need to address because this isn't just about protecting property it's also about protecting lives if we have the right kind of fire breaks and brush clearing done beforehand and the trees are cleared from around power lines then you don't get the campfire and the tub fire again which are able to rip through communities in record time because no one is taking care of the basic wildland infrastructure that that we need to survive this kind of stuff so you know, it's not just the inmates that are getting screwed, though they're yeah. definitely ending up at the bottom of this pile. Yeah. The regular folks that are on the fire lines out there, they're making like $12 an hour. That's 
insanely low. It, it really is. And this this is also bringing up a an, an very uh, an interesting discussion that I, I've seen it happening a couple of times. Uh, they talked about it on an L.A. podcast, and I'm, we've talked about it before, about the need to stop building in these areas with you know, this urban wildlife interface zone. We need to basically step back from these areas where uh, civilization is just not meant to be. We, are, we need to leave. Some, a lot of these valleys and hillsides need to just not have homes on them. These are not areas that can be reasonably protected and putting the, like, you know, building in these areas like up in Malibu and building through these canyons and putting these homes up there like what Kim and Kanye have and like what all of these incredibly wealthy people in Bel Air. I mean, we're, we're hearing about folks like Arnold Schwarzenegger and LeBron James had to evacuate their homes this morning. Like, putting these people in these situations, if they have the ability to pull in those kind of private contractors, you know, those, those resources could be better used protecting, you know, more wider swaths of the, of the population. And by concentrating that, that focus in these areas where there are fewer people, but like higher value homes or higher value estates or whatever, uh, you end up, Really, kind of just it's it's gets in the it, it it spreads the resources too thin. You end up with situations like uh, what was it the Woolsey fire where uh, the yeah. mayor of L.A. is sending fire crews out to go check up on people's homes instead of letting them get out there and proactively try to protect communities like these like these fucking donors are able to call in like a favor with the mayor and get fire crews sent out to go see whether or not their home has burned down instead of having that fire crew going out and actively trying to protect more homes like come on our system is just so fundamentally broken for this and these kind of fires happening every single year are really just exacerbating the situation and making it all the more clear that we cannot continue to go down this path the way that we have been without making some absolutely fundamental changes or it's it's just i mean it's all falling apart as it is but it's going to fall apart a hell of a lot faster if we don't make some very very fundamental changes on this yeah so let's talk about uh the next fire uh which was up in the vallejo region which was threatening infrastructure that wasn't just homes and like this one actually was really scary for a minute it absolutely was and and it's this is the one that a lot of people were talking about on sunday uh, with these incredibly dramatic photos of uh, the bridge, uh, the uh, what's the name of the bridge that's escaping me at the moment? The uh, Carquinez. Carquinez, yes, the Carquinez Bridge. Uh, Car- Car- yeah, yeah, I'm guessing. I'm gonna guess it's Carquinez. Uh, so the Carquinez Bridge uh, on I-80, uh, I believe it's I-80, uh, had, yeah. was was engulfed in smoke. Uh, on on Sunday, and it presented a truly, you know, apocalyptic vision of you know the climate re- the climate emergency that we're currently living through uh, was very much captured uh, in in those images as you know flames were threatening uh, the 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 town of city rather of uh, of Crockett uh, the 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 flames actually managed to jump across the street which the bridge crosses. And start fires up on the other side. So the uh, I-80 back on Sunday was closed for uh, five hours. Um, and, and it's not a small strait. No. Like that's not a tiny body of water that it jumped. 
Yeah, so this this uh, the the fire that started up in uh, in Vallejo was in Solana County. It was dubbed the Glen Cove Fire, and it started somewhere around uh, just after nine in the morning, burning 150 acres or so before jumping I-80 in Vallejo and sweeping east to west, spreading onto the 1,200 student campus of the California Maritime Academy. Uh, continuing with some more quotes from the SF Chronicle, uh, the fire across the street. Uh, in Contra Costa County, named the Sky Fire, erupted about an hour later, burning another 150 acres along Cummings Skyway near Crockett. It came close to the New Star Energy Fuel Storage Plant, which was evacuated along with most of the town of Crockett. Uh, and what's interesting about this is that this is the exact same place, I believe we talked about this two weeks ago or so, uh, there was a fire on October 16th that broke out at that exact refinery in Costa County, and burned two storage yep. tanks that were f- uh, containing significant amounts of ethanol. That blaze sent a massive, thick plume of black smoke up into the air and prompted a shelter-in-place order to be released. Um, following that refinery blaze, which they t- that one, I, I gotta, I gotta pop in here yeah, because yeah. that one was really weird because uh, part of that kind of screwed up my regular like jobby job job uh, because oh, really? it caused massive freeway closures uh, and seeing as I'm working for kind of like a gig transportation company uh, that's ferrying people around uh, and we work in Northern California Ooh. we had drivers on the road and we had parents calling us and being like hey my kid What's needs to get picked on? up now yeah. or like why is the driver taking an hour to get here? It was an absolute mess and also scary for a lot of people because nobody knew exactly what was burning in that refinery as it was happening. All they knew was like suddenly the freeways came to a standstill. Suddenly everyone was told to like get inside. Uh, And, you know, anytime a refinery burns, there's a risk of a massive explosion happening. And I know there's a lot of engineering that goes into these facilities to stop that from happening, but it's sort of when fire breaks out, like it becomes an uncontrolled situation. Absolutely. So there actually were reports of multiple explosions happening up there at that new star refinery. Um, prior, like as the blaze was, it was kicking off. Uh, so one of the things that was very interesting that I, I saw in some, uh, some follow-up reporting on the 18th from the San Francisco Chronicle, they cited sources that said that workers at the new star refinery had actually fled the scene before the fire crews arrived leaving gates locked behind them and not, you know, communicating to the firefighters what the hell was in the tanks that were on fire. So the reason why a lot of these like shelter in place orders and everything come out is because these refineries are full of incredibly toxic chemicals that can cause incredible amounts of damage to people's respiratory health and can cause, you know, uh, massive overexposures of, of carcinogenic chemicals that will cause cancer and all of these other risks, and the firefighters are, are really putting themselves at, you know, on the front line in harm's way on this, and th- these companies, if they don't properly train their workers, these firefighters are going in there with an even higher level of risk, and communities around them don't know what it is that's going on. Like One of the things that, uh, you know, I, we're, it's going to be interesting to see whether or not New Star has to like face any repercussions from this because this happened a couple of weeks ago and then uh, this new fire came close again to potentially interrupting services at their facility. I believe they actually evacuated the facility during uh, this, this last fire um, in, you know, with the understanding that if it did uh, reach the facility, then things were going to get real bad real fast. Um, but the, 
we we had these these fires that have happened down in refineries in like in the South Bay here in uh, Los Angeles near uh, Wilmington and near San Pedro, and it is you know devastating to hear about these things. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the 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 chemical that's used, but this this is the same one that you know caused that massive massive explosion in uh, Philadelphia, right? Where they ended up having to cause yeah. you know, millions, basically millions of people to need to shelter in place because there was this massive plume of toxic chemicals uh, spewing from this incredible fireball that erupted from one of these refineries. And it's we need to be moving beyond these fossil fuels for so many reasons. But the direct threat to human life that is presented by these refineries that exist along our coastline near these high fire zones is absolutely insane. And allowing them to store these kinds of incredibly toxic chemicals in these above ground storage tanks that are so prone to uh, this kind of a risk, it just boggles the mind. It absolutely just boggles the mind. Well, and... and to kind of like put a fine point on that, even when that refinery in Philadelphia is operating normally, it is the biggest source of emissions in that city every single day. And that's when it's operating safely. Like having refineries in the middle of your city, having those refinery capabilities anywhere is Front just really freaking dangerous and bad. And like we keep going through this same fight where like we want to shut them down. We have the Fucking refinery in Torrance. Them. We have the refinery yeah. in Vallejo. We have the refineries in Wilmington. And they're not doing anyone any good. And the fossil fuel companies, like when we hear the argument, well, what about the workers? The fossil fuel companies are moving to eliminate most of their human workforce yeah. anyways. They would rather automate it they because these are dangerous to jobs. Come in there with those Android robot things to create, you know, uh, a, a truly automated workforce that is as remote as possible because it is. These are incredibly dangerous jobs. Yep. And the same thing that Maersk is doing at the port. And like, yeah. this, like this is going to keep happening. We, we have a lot of these refineries in California. They keep catching on fire. Uh, they keep having fires erupting very close to them. Like This isn't going away anytime soon. No, uh, so let's move on to uh, the one that was making headlines today and the one that we flagged and the one that is like incredibly scary for people that are in LA, uh, the Getty fire, which broke out on the 405. Uh, there's a video on Twitter. I saw of like somebody who saw some flames called 911. And then 10 minutes later, like a few small flames were gigantic flames. I know that, yeah. uh, LA fire is working to secure the Getty, the Getty for what it's worth. And I, I you know, it's kind of, cool the way they built that facility uh, because it is designed to protect all of the art. Like It is almost a fireproof facility and yeah. all of the expensive art that you see can literally drop below the marble and seal itself off so it doesn't burn. Uh, and it's kind of cool that like we're protecting these artifacts of our civilization in such a great way. Uh, not so much about the people though uh, because if you live in a house around there, you're just having to run for your life at this point. So let's, uh, let's talk about where the Getty fires stands uh, when we're recording at about 11.15 a.m. Pacific time. So I was actually just checking some of the most recent updates, and apparently they're expecting the winds to be shifting around noon. Uh, So firefighters are now focusing their efforts to try to put out some of the uh, little spot fires that have erupted in the immediate vicinity of the Getty Museum itself uh, in anticipation that those winds are going to be shifting and that things are going to get kind of crazy again here in the afternoon. One of the things I had seen in some of the reporting uh, that I was reading earlier, uh, because, I mean, this has been something that uh, has been 
capturing all of my attention since I woke up this morning, basically. Uh, it's they've got an expectation that it was like winds were about 10 miles an hour when it, this all started uh, this morning. And of course, these fires then do create their own wind and then spread more quickly because of it. Uh, but they're expecting winds to be getting up to 40 mile an hour gusts here this afternoon and potentially increasing as, you know, as the uh, the air heats up in the mountains and pulls uh, that dry air further inland. It's it's going to be a- absolutely crazy. But um, basically, there are there are massive evacuations underway in the area. It's continuing uh, as we speak. Uh, quote from the for quoting from the L.A. Times, uh, the Getty fire broke out shortly after 1.30 a.m. along the 405 freeway near the Getty Center and spread to the south and west, rapidly burning more than 500 acres and sending people fleeing from their homes in the dark. About 10,000 structures have been placed under mandatory evacuation orders, end quote. And worth pointing out, I, I actually saw a Twitter thread um, from a woman who said basically she was driving down the, the, one, uh, the 405 uh, at that time and had seen uh, two little fires off in the scrubland in the distance and had called it in and within 10 minutes it had turned into this massive blaze. So this yeah, is Yeah, that was the same things. tweet I saw. Yeah, exactly. So w- from reiterating what you were saying about that, it's one of those like if you see something, say something. Like if you see smoke coming out of like anywhere in uh, the brush near any of these hills, anywhere in Los Angeles, don't assume that somebody else has called it in. Call it in, report it, because these things can just explode in a matter of minutes, and it's so much better to be safe than sorry when it comes to any of these kind of wildfires. Because we're talking about, you know, destroying people's entire uh, life savings, livelihoods, putting people's lives at risk, uh, destroying in- incredible amounts of of everything. And I- yeah, I, I have to say, when I was going up to uh, Canvas. Uh, up in Porter Ranch, uh, me and Kendall were driving up there. I, I believe we were on like the 134 because um, mm-hmm. we weren't on the, the 405. We were off like whatever freeway you kind of break off onto to, to get into Porter Ranch. And we saw smoke coming from a hillside. So we actually hopped off the exit and I called it in. Uh, the dispatcher was very professional and was like, okay, we know about this and we have a crew responding to it immediately. Uh, but it's still one of those things where like your heart starts beating really fast as soon as you see smoke and flames on one of these super dry tinder hillsides, especially when you just see it surrounded by homes because you have, you know, a hill that's nothing but wildland, and then right across a cul-de-sac is, you know, dozens and dozens of homes, and you just doing the math in your head, you know that fire can get to those homes really, really quickly. Absolutely, and, and it's incredibly important that you guys did that. That's great, and uh, everyone should do that. Like, I've only, fortunately, I've only seen uh, fires that already had, you know, crews actively trying to fight them. Um, when I lived up in Eagle Rock, I saw a bunch of stuff up along the two and then other areas like in Highland Park, seeing stuff when I was uh, on the 110, seeing things in uh, in like the uh, Sereno or was it Montecito Heights up in those hillsides. Like it's it's spooky when you see it. And I mean, it's r- the the response that we get out of like LAFD is absolutely incredible. And seeing those helicopters and those uh, those airdrops of you know, thousands of gallons of water onto these fires. Uh, it's incredible the amount of, you know, f- the, the, the rapidity of the response and how effective it can be. But at the same time, if things start to grow the way that they have up in Northern California, like 
the scale of those fires, if you look at some of the footage that they've got on like the LA Times website for the Kincaid fire, it is just it's just spooky. It's it's this just completely post-apocalyptic hellscape of swirling uh, tornadoes of fire in this completely blacked out landscape with like, oh, just an eerie red orange glow everywhere. And everyone's talking muffled in the background with like the masks and respirators and everything else that's necessary to continue to like not die in that kind of an environment. But it's just, as soon as it gets out of control, it's, it's, it's gone. Like there's not much you can do about it uh, other than, you know, try to be uh, as defensive as possible around these kind of structures. So, one of the other things that happened with the Getty, the Getty fire this morning uh, was that Mount St. Mary's University was uh, basically completely surrounded by fire. And the, uh, fortunately, it does look like the, the, the 450 students that do uh, attend that university have all been safely evacuated from, the, their, their, uh, from that campus over to the, the school's Doheny campus near downtown Los Angeles. Um, around 2.30 in the morning, apparently, was when resident advisors started knocking on the doors of the students at Mount St. Mary's University and told students that it was time for them to go. One student, Diana Rodriguez, told the LA Times that she, quote, grabbed her laptop, phone, camera, and chargers, stuffed her backpack with snacks and water, and left her dorm in pajamas. The sky was blood red. Quote, really, really red and orange. Pretty, but a little freaky, too, she recalled. And I, I just can't even imagine what must like what that must have been like as a college student to suddenly have everything just turned upside down of yep, grab your stuff and get out the door. Like you don't have time to change, you don't have time to do anything. Just pick it up and get out of here. And uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think you and I were at uh, USC around the same time. I yeah. think it was the 2004 fire. Yeah, when you could see it from campus, like it was up in the valley, so it wasn't close to campus, but it, there was just this weird. Oh, orange hazy was, glow yeah and well the thing i remember about living in la since then is that that went from being a oh my gosh that was so freaky that one time yeah. to a pretty normal occurrence every year where la just gets the fire glow and you just know that like somewhere out there things are burning and air quality is becoming absolutely terrible and unbreathable but it's gone from being a once in occasional like event to yeah. basically a yearly occurrence here it really has and and this is this is how we know it's fall in la like we don't really have ways of distinguishing the seasons other than that everything catches on fire and i i do distinctly yeah, they, remember that that particular fire that everything on campus seemed to have just like a sepia tone to it because it just the the light at all time as soon as it was like past noon it felt like it was you know dusk basically the yeah, whole rest of the it day it was freaky it was so weird everything had that orange glow and it i mean this is this is the new normal we just have to live with is that October and November in Los Angeles is when everything around us is burning. Yeah. So let's uh, let's talk about the Oak Fire, which broke out and then yeah. was very quickly contained, it sounds like, but it's probably a sign of things to come. Like these small fires, like I mentioned at the top, there was one that broke out in Griffith Park and got knocked down really quickly. Uh, but these small fires are going to keep cropping up, and it's just kind of a roll of the dice if they're going to be able to be contained before they blow up into something bigger. Yeah, so fortunately it doesn't look like there were any kind of evacuations that happened surrounding this, but it was a, a brush fire that broke out near... Calabasas that was dubbed the Oak Fire. Um, it was basically the news of it came out 
Uh, I saw it pop up on Twitter just uh, literally just a few minutes before we started recording. Um, but then uh, it was followed up with more news that the fire had been contained and was apparently uh, limited in its spread to just 10 acres. And it does seem to be under control at this point. So uh, hopefully that one is done and nothing else is going to come out of it. Uh, the fact that they had already named it led me to believe that it might get a lot worse, but it did get tamped down real quick. So, uh, yeah, a as you pointed out, this is this does seem to be a taste of things to come. Like the amount of stuff, like with the tick fire, uh, just that. Oh, geez, that was only just a couple of days ago. It, it's yeah, no, it's happening so fast. It's hard to keep track. And I mean, that one was uh, it was jumping freeways. It was the 14, um, the California 14 up in that area, up in Santa Clarita. Uh, a friend of mine has has a, a good friend of hers that lives up in that area. And they were trying to figure out whether or not the area was under evacuation. And then uh, while we were looking at a map trying to make a determination, the next news alert that came in said, nope, it's changed directions, it's moving south now. And suddenly his home was under evacuation threat. Uh, fortunately, that they, you know, uh, his home didn't end up getting burned down, but like this stuff changes on a dime and you don't know what's going to happen. And all of these places where we've built these homes uh, up into this beautiful you know, canyon lands that we have here, in California, that everything is at risk in these kind of circumstances. It is so dry, and we have done such, you know, a poor job of managing our, our urban wilderness interface that everything is at risk. And until we really do take some meaningful steps to address it, this is literally what it's going to be like every single fall moving forward. Because this 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 is the new normal. This is what a climate emergency looks like. And we must do something to change it. So let's let's talk a little bit about the villain in all this. And I want to I want to uh, flag this before we move into that that you're going to see a lot of misinformation out there, especially when it comes to the Getty Fire and the Tick Fire, the Oak Fire, where people are trying to blame unhoused people and they're going to reference the Skirball Fire. Like there is no known cause to the Skirball Fire that doesn't stop people who hate people without permanent shelter from blaming them for that fire. And it's really disgusting to see, and it's going to happen again. But so we do know that PG&E is responsible for several of these fires. We know they're responsible for the Camp Fire. It sounds like they're responsible for the Kincaid Fire. And PG&E is a kind of weird entity because they're basically a private interest, uh, an investor-owned utility that is given a monopoly by the state to deliver power and store, um, you know, natural gas and deliver gas to Northern California. They have a lot of problems. And one of the problems is obviously that they've decided to not fix their infrastructure to stop these kinds of fires by putting their power transmission lines underground. Now, they could have done this about a decade ago, but do you know what they decided to do with that money instead, Chris? What did they decide to do with it? Pay bonuses to their executives. Oh, no. I didn't see that coming at all. Yeah. And it's really weird because we're finally having um, this debate about whether or not we should municipalize PG&E, something that London Breed and San Francisco kind of entered into a couple months ago, yeah. which then led PG&E to try and get language, and successfully, I should say, get language inserted into the latest bailout bill 
with the state to stop municipalities from being able to take over their infrastructure. Something that seems so absolutely asinine until you realize that they throw around tens of thousands of dollars to every elected who sits on that committee, yeah, including do. Miguel Santiago, who represents AD 53, which is where you happen to be living at the moment. Yes, it is. I mean, I remember that, uh, you know, looking into what the campaign contribution history was behind the folks that are, are you know making donations to his campaign and ha that have been making donations over the years and PG&E kept popping up. Um, quick note before before we really go into the the impacts on this I uh, I sent you a, a an image of the the stock price for PG&E. I wanted to give a quick update that Beautiful. that is that is still exactly uh, right now at the time of this recording uh, $3.98 per share. Uh, that is down 20% since the close on Friday, uh, which, you know, was down, I believe it was 30% from the time before that. But we're talking about back in September of 2017, these shares were trading for $70. And even just one year ago, after everything else had come out and everyone knew what kind of shape they were in, uh, you were right, actually probably right before that, they were trading at almost $50. Um, before the news of of their liability and everything started to come out, and then they suddenly dropped down to like the you know twenty twenty five dollar range, but they are now sitting pretty at four dollars a share. So if we're talking about opportunities for uh, you know the state to come in and and, and pick them up, these shares were worth eight dollars just uh, literally five days ago, and are now worth four and probably going to continue to slide because. If they are responsible for the Kincaid fire, and it does seem likely that they are, uh, this this could very well be the end of PG&E as a a private uh, utility. So you know, it's the the uh, what's the the name of it that they use? It's a, a investor owned utility, uh, which means yeah, that, an IOU. Yeah, so it's it is very much a. You know, it's regulated by the state in terms of what it is that they're able to charge the ratepayers, but at the same time, uh, the investors are the ones who are making the money here, and the investors have been making money for a long time, and the folks, the C-class executives at PG&E, have been making a lot of money for a long time here. And we did dig into this a little bit when we were talking about the history of PG&E and how just monumentally fucked up it all is in terms of uh, the links with Enron and everything else. Like, we're talking about a an organization that has uh, been entrusted with securing the power delivery to the, the central heart of this state um, and at the same time operating these high voltage lines and other transmission lines across some of the most uh, f like some of the most at risk areas in the state from uh, wildfire and they've just completely neglected to spend the money on the appropriate infrastructure and maintenance that is necessary to continue to operate successfully so one and well, and at the same time that they weren't doing this maintenance, yeah. they were issuing stock buybacks. I think over the last decade oh, or so, they've God. they've bought back four point five billion the buybacks. dollars. Just 
Same. Yeah, $4.5 billion worth of stock buyback, which is one reason their stock was able to remain high, even when they were facing massive liabilities from the Tubbs fire, the Camp fire, and then, you know, more, uh, sorry, from the, the Tubbs fire, and then more recently from the Camp fire. And this is a strategy that corporations use to keep their stocks really high, and it's something that executives are interested in prices. because a lot of their compensation is tied to to the price of the stock. You know, executives aren't paid necessarily millions of dollars a year, but are given stock, which is where their primary valuation is. So they have a vested interest in keeping that stock high, even when the company is performing poorly, or in this case, when the utility is facing massive liabilities of its own creation. Absolutely. So one of the things that, you know, we've discussed this amongst ourselves, and we've discussed it a little bit on here as well, like this idea that a, you know, anything that is operated for, the public good should really just frankly be in the hands of the public. Like we should not be subsidizing a bunch of shareholders uh, to make their profits off of our back because they've locked it up in a monopoly. Like these are literally state state sanctioned monopolies that enable these investors to have been, you know, raking dividends for quite some time. I mean, now any money that they've invested into these shares is effectively lost uh, pretty much all of its value at this point. I, I mean, unless you were short selling PG&E, which would have been a really great bet uh, about a week ago when it you know, has now lost more than half of its value again. Uh, this, is a, this is an entity that has proven itself to be completely... Uh, it, it's, it's unscrupulous in how it spends the money that it was supposed to be spending on maintenance. It doesn't give a damn about protecting the public. It has, you know, caused these, you know, heavy-handed power outages that they've been sweeping up and down the the area around San Francisco, the poor areas around San Francisco, you know, keeping keeping the lights on in San Francisco proper and Silicon Valley itself, of course. Um, but shutting down the power for everybody in these, you know, in the suburban and exurban areas, uh, in the areas around, which of course are the areas that are most likely to be at threat of having one of these transmission uh, wires spark a fire. So it is understandable, but at the same time, like it's kind of, you know, you cannot separate the fact that this has a disproportionate impact on uh, poor and working class communities. But it's, they have just genuinely proven themselves to be incompetent at managing this system. And it is well past time. Uh, that the state step in and do something about it. Well, and it's also something where the state has sort of uh, sort of stepped in and said, we do want to make some changes here. Yeah. So in the latest bailout bill, which amounts to about a $20 billion bailout, and again, like there are two different PG&E bailouts going on at the same time. Like One of them is related to the Tubbs fire. The other one is related to the Camp fire. The Camp fire one is the bill that's worth about $20 billion and includes like the state demands the ability to pick who's going to sit on the board of PG&E so it's not just the corporation and the executives choosing who gets to oversee the operations of this corporation. It, it's still very weak sauce. Like, none of it includes the transfer of ownership of these utilities or their infrastructure to the state or to the municipalities. And what's really, really weird about this is we do have a way to municipalize these utilities, which I think is the smarter way to go. It's not like... I don't think the way forward is for the state of California to just take over PG&E's infrastructure and run it as this large conglomerate again. It should break it out into uh, more like 
community-based microgrids and into community-based owned utilities so that these communities can decide what they want and how they want to structure their power load, how they want to build resilient power structures and like battery storage, wind farms, solar farms, perhaps hydro, just like the way that each community is able to manage their own power should be different because the way that Eureka is going to manage their power infrastructure is going to be way different than the way that San Francisco is going to manage its power infrastructure. The demands there are different. And we need to start thinking about that in a way because we don't just want resiliency, we also want some sort of agility in the way that our communities respond to the climate crisis. And we need to understand that not every community is going to have the same solutions or have the same like demands. And we're not really talking about that yet. And it's something with, you know, Gavin Newsom is like, oh, PG&E should be ashamed of itself. And it's like, well then effing do something about it, Gavin. He's got the power. Swing the big stick. I, I I do not understand why so many elected officials in the state just refuse to actually take action and do something about this. Like they have the capacity to make so many of the changes that are necessary to do this, but they refuse to do so. Like, and this, this falls on like, I, I, I don't know why this immediately brings to mind what's going on right now, but it all kind of ties in together judging by what we were talking about with that state of emergency and rent freezes. When you look at things like, 1482 which is an incredibly like it's it's so helpful to see like even just like a tepid approach at trying to put in rent control here in the state like our legislature decided not to bother making it like immediately go into effect and instead chose to sit on it and say well now it's going to go into effect on January 1st 2020 okay great that means that you've now given all of these landlords up and down the state, 90-ish to 100 days or more of time to get in their 60-day eviction notices for no-fault evictions up and down the state. Like, we could have done something about this. Gavin could do something about PG&E. We, like, our elected officials are simply abrogating the responsibility to go out there and protect the public interest on this front relating to PG&E, on the front with rent control, on the, you know, in the face of uh, skyrocketing medicine costs and all of these other things, our elected officials have the power to do stuff. They have the power to act. They simply lack the willpower or the spine to fucking do it. And it is driving me absolutely insane. Like, I have resorted to tweeting in all fucking caps in the last couple of days because... It seems to be the only way that anybody's listening to things. Like, what the hell's going on? No, it's really, really fucked up. So, PG&E, I know we're not going to see a lot of movement here. No. Uh, the only person in the presidential race who's talking about uh, nationalizing our utilities. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, like, you know, a survival strategy, a legitimate one at this point, I think, is voting for Bernie Sanders. Yes. But let's talk about oh my God. Uh, some other more non-responsive people that are, are, you know, still running things in L.A. And something you've been involved with. And this yeah. is, like... Obviously, BLM just had their two-year anniversary of their vigil at Jackie Lacey's office. But there's now a new push uh, specifically to bring accountability to the sheriff's office because the sheriff's office is larger than LAPD, is the de facto government in many parts of unincorporated LA, has an operating budget of $3.5 billion, which includes many of the largest jails in the freaking country, if not the world. You know, California has the largest prison population in the world. A lot of those prisoners are 
under the the care, and I put care in square, yeah, scare quotes, so. of Alex Villanueva, who's currently the sheriff of L.A. County. So let's talk about what's going on on that front. Yeah, so this Wednesday, uh, well, before we jump into that too much, last Wednesday we had the two-year anniversary of what was going, uh, what has been happening at uh, in front of the Hall of Justice, and often it was referred to the Hall of Injustice because no justice for these communities is actually happening there. But there was the, the two-year anniversary of the start of these protests demanding uh, action from Jackie Lacey, uh, which basically stemmed from the fact that under her watch, more than 500 people have been shot and killed uh, by either LAPD or LA Sheriff's deputies uh, in uh, un- uh, while she's been in office. And the number of prosecutions that have resulted from that uh, can literally be counted on one hand. Uh, folks are not getting fired. Folks are not getting prosecuted. Nothing is happening. There is no justice for these families. And that is why every single week for the last two years, Black Lives Matter has shown up and has held a rally to hold space and provide room for grieving families to you know, voice their pain and suffering in front of Jackie Lacey's office and demand that she actually do something about it. And, and you know, in the last year or so, They've really changed the tactic from demanding that she, you know, take action to now it's just, no, you've proven yourself incapable of doing this job. It is time for you to go. And it is now turning into the, I believe it's a hashtag by Jackie 2020 uh, movement that's going on with Black Lives Matter. Demand that there be a new uh, district attorney that gets elected to replace her because she has clearly shown herself to be unwilling to do uh, anything relating to her job when it comes to dealing with uh, use of force from from law enforcement agencies. So we've got some audio that we'd love to play for you now from that rally. That means we don't need police at all, right? And we, and we need that as a testament to Tatiana Jefferson, right? When we think about that killing, it's important to remember that instead of calling they asses for a welfare check, knock on your neighbor's door. Knock on your, they have tricked us into believing we need to be afraid of each other. What keeps our communities safe is knowing each other and having community together. Having community together. Ashe. Thank you everybody for coming out here and supporting us. Because without y'all support y'all, Jackie Lacey would think that this is just a game. That's exactly what she thinks this is. But now we showing Jackie Lexi that we will stand and we will fight together. Because that's the only way we gonna change shit from the police, from this place right here, and from our medical system that's messing over the poor. And that's all this system do. This whole system is designed to take us down and keep us down. But we gonna let Jackie Lacey know, you getting your ass out of here, Jackie Lacey. You getting out of here. You leaving. Your time is up. Your time is up. My son John Horton was murdered, beat to death in solitary confinement 2009, March 30th, by 10 racist ass sheriff deputies. And he, they beat him, hit him in his head with a flashlight, left the prints of the flashlight on his forehead. What a blood clot, what a knot. Bust his liver, bust his kidney, bust the muscle in his back, broke the cartilage on his nose, 
was also hitting his head, the side of his temple, had a big gash on his, on his side, on his shoulder, also messed up his pelvis, his pancreas, all this done to him, and then they staged the suicide and say he hung himself. Now you tell me, what the hell is wrong with Jackie Lacey? She been in office for six years now, what, six, seven years, and his case been on her desk for six years. She still haven't even gave me a ruling if she not gonna prosecute or not. Cause you know why she haven't gave me a ruling? Cause she can't. You can't. How you, you can't justify this beating. You can't really justify none of these deaths that done happen to our family members. But y'all, it's up for us to change everything in this city. This is our city. This city don't belong to Jackie Lacey. She just passed it through. She written. Don't forget that. Jackie Lacey just written. She just passed it through. And even the next person that take office, we got to stay on their ass too to make sure this stop. Because if we don't, they gonna keep killing our kids like our kids' lives don't mean nothing. And we know our beautiful kids is our world. And even though they gone, we gonna continue to speak for them. We gonna continue to fight for them. We gonna continue to stand for them. And we not going nowhere, Jackie. This our front porch. We took over your shit. This is our front porch. John Horton. John Horton. John Horton. Jackie Lacey must go. Jackie Lacey will go. Jackie Lacey will go. a lot of folks coming out of this building, right? We know it's a lot of folks around here that don't know this message yet, right? That don't know why we out here, right? So we need to continue to take this to the streets. So we're gonna be going down there, right to this intersection right here, right? We got some folks with banners. They are gonna be leading us out there and we are gonna be chanting and tearing it up and letting everybody know, right? That we still here, that we gonna be here and that come next November, Jackie Lacey's ass ain't gonna be here, right? Bye-bye, Jackie Lacey! Bye-bye, Jackie Lacey! Jackie Lacey must go! Jackie Lacey will go! Jackie Lacey must go! Jackie Lacey will go! All right, so that was what happened last week. We literally took over the streets in front of the Hall of Justice. We shut it down for a while. Uh, I actually was out there and got a notification on my phone telling me that there were, uh, quote, 100 protesters or so uh, shutting down Temple and Spring Street and that it was a quarter mile away from me. And I, 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 I laughed and pointed to it and showed it to some of the other people out there protesting and said, oh, look, they think that I'm a quarter mile away from the event that I'm actually attending and I'm part of. Uh, but yeah, so the, the, we, we, we managed to shut down traffic for a good while. And uh, shockingly enough, we actually did not see any kind of a police response. Uh, we expected that there, there would have been, and it is extremely dangerous for uh, the folks from BLM and from all of these other 
uh, allied uh, community organizations to be out there and doing this because as has been proven time and time again, you are at such a higher risk of uh, the use of deadly force and other uh, you know, gross force uh, overuse application uh, or application of force rather uh, in these kind of confrontations with police, even for acts of civil disobedience, like seizing a, an intersection and shutting it down. Um, but we did get the message out there. It did cause uh, some level of disruption. Uh, there was a, a pretty decent amount of media coverage for it, all things considered, compared to you know what we have seen uh, for these protests in weeks past. We had a number of folks um, perched up on uh, the bits of the you know the plaza that uh, afforded any kind of a view of the um, of the the ceremonies that were happening and taking place, and we got to listen to a number of families uh, air their stories and talk about the pain and suffering that it has caused for them, and shout their demands over this uh, you know an, an amplified sound system at the Hall of Justice, hearing the rever reverberating noise as it's bouncing between these buildings, demanding that there actually be justice for their loved ones who were taken from them by LAPD, by LA County Sheriff's deputies, by all of these people. And it was an incredibly powerful movement. I was so happy to have been able to be there and be a part of it and uh, capture some of these audio recordings and, and march in solidarity around in circles in this, in this intersection, holding the space and you know, demanding that that action be taken. And we had a lot of support from people who were stuck waiting to get through that intersection. There were a couple of people that got very angry at us, but you know what? That's just, you know, there are gonna be, you know, haters are gonna hate, right? So it's, uh, it was an incredibly powerful action and I was thrilled to be a part of it. But moving forward, uh, this week, yeah. We're actually going to be changing from being a, a 4 a.m. meeting. There's going to be another event. Uh, the, the usual Jackie Lacey protest will happen. It will be slightly different. Um, it will be taking place. It's probably going to not be starting at exactly 4 p.m. as it normally would, but there will be another action taking place uh, where we'll be gathering at 3 p.m. Uh, demanding accountability and action uh, related to Sheriff Villanueva. Uh, the exact specifics of what are going to be going down, I'm not going to talk about right now because, uh, you know, it's it's an action that's happening. Uh, but something will be happening. And uh, there will be some follow-on action that will, will continue to happen. So it's going to be uh, a very interesting afternoon and evening of action. So if you have the time and energy and you are able to make it out to join us, we would love to see you. That's going to be happening uh, this Wednesday, October 30th at 211 West Temple. Uh, the, the action, like I said, it's going to be a little bit different from what happens normally at these BLM actions, but uh, many of those same elements are still going to be there, but there will be uh, a little bit of a different spice because we're going to be directing it not just at Jackie Lacey, but also at Sheriff Villanueva, who does have an office in the same building, um, because of course they do. Yep, of course they do. And uh, the sheriff is actually responsible for security around that building, so yeah. that's going to be an interesting one. Yeah, it'll be fun. <laughs> I'll be filming. It should be fun. All right. Yeah, so uh, again, you know, show up Wednesday the 30th. Uh, check the sheriff. Uh, keep an eye out for more of that campaign rolling out. We've been doing some work around it. Um, there's going to be some really interesting, really cool stuff coming out. Uh, we're going to roll into our last couple of stories. So one, before we kind of like lay into RevCom here, because I... 
do not like Revcom. But before we do that, I do want to flag a story that we're going to talk about next week because we're just running like way too long and don't have a, a chance to like tear into yeah, this one too. Sorry, is the Katie Hill story? Oh yeah. Uh, this one's pretty messed up. Uh, we are going to talk about that because I knocked a lot of doors for Katie Hill. Uh, a lot of folks at Ground Game knocked a lot of doors for Katie Hill. Like we turned out a huge neighborhood for Katie Hill. That was meaningful and important. And watching her career suddenly evaporate is complex and complicated. And I feel like there's a lot to unpack and a lot that I want to talk about around that. But we're not going to do that just yet. But for anyone out there who's curious about like what our take is on that, don't worry. We've got it coming for you. And it's not going to be the same old line that you're seeing ripping across Twitter right now, comparing her to like Al Franken and other absolute acts of idiocy. But Let's go ahead and talk about the Revolutionary Communist Party. Now, Revcom has been making uh, some waves uh, for a little bit. They were out there on July 4th in Washington, D.C. One of their East Coast leaders got arrested. Yeah. Well, they burned a couple of them, actually, because the first one got put out, and then they burned a second one. And then uh, they kind of were coaxed into leaving by the police, who were like, okay, you've made your idiotic point. You can leave now. (laughs) And so they then got into a fight with some of the MAGA folks. Yeah. Uh, Something that they also also did in Beverly Hills the last time Donald Trump was in town, which was, uh, I want to say, two or three weeks ago. Uh, maybe a month ago, uh, there was another like shouting and shoving and punching match yeah. uh, between members of Revcom and uh, various flavors of MAGA folks. But the latest incident traces back to uh, October 20th when the Revolutionary Communists, uh, under their campaign of resist fascism, uh, held a rally out at the Santa Monica Pier. Now, for all intents and purposes, this was a nothing rally. It was a bunch of people, they kind of spelled out like, resist fascism on the beach and Trump and Pence must go. And there's a decent little drone shot. Like, they're able to create kind of a cool visual. But after they did that on the sand, they then went up to the pier to continue their rally. And while they were there, a Trump supporter unleashed bear spray on the crowd. It actually turns out two Trump supporters probably uh, released chemical agents. Only one of them has been arrested. The other one... Well, he's been identified on social media. I'm not going to be talking about him because there's no like actual documentation of him doing that. So that one's a little bit weirder. But it, most likely, two people on Trump's side released chemical weapons or chemical agents mm-hmm. against a bunch of Revcom protesters. Now, the man who was arrested is David Dempsey, who's 32. Uh, he's a well-known Trump supporter, uh, spits a lot of fire online, talks a lot of crap about a lot of people. But he's also kind of why I, he's, he's what I'm using to enter into this discussion about Revcom and why I think they're uniquely dangerous and counterproductive to what we're trying to do. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit about where Revcom came from. And now Revcom was formed in, the 19, in uh, 1980. It came out of several different kind of communist and leftist groups, starting with the American Communist Party, which fell apart. Uh, it was... the. It traces its roots to a man named Bob Avakian, and Bob Avakian has quite the history. He was uh, kind of a leftist from New York who came out to uh, Berkeley for the leftist and free speech movement out there. He was actually arrested uh, twice in the 1970s, once for burning a flag and then once for punching a police officer um, as a member of the Students for a Democratic Society, which was one of the kind of like leftist-ish groups that kind of gave way to the broader leftist movement uh, post the Vietnam War. So Bob Avakian himself is is a very strange character. Uh, he became involved with the Students for a Democratic Society in, in Berkeley in the 1970s, like I mentioned. Uh, after that, it kind of fell apart, and 
he sort of fell into what he wanted to call a new communism. So the Revolutionary Communist Party describes itself as Marxist-Leninist-Maoist, and what exactly that means is kind of hard to tell. Um, they push what they call a scientific theory of the revolution, and if you read any of their pamphlets, they really sell this idea that there's a scientific theory for the revolution. What that scientific theory is, you have no idea. What are they doing to get there? Well, nothing all that useful. You might remember uh, about two years ago, uh, on the first anniversary of Trump's inauguration, Resist Fascism had big rallies staged across the country, including in Times Square, where all of like 70 people showed up to see Bob Avakian speak for two and a half hours. Uh, it was a pretty boring, nothing event. But the events that led up to it are kind of interesting, especially the one that went down on the 110 in downtown Los Angeles, yep. where 16 young people who were affiliated with Resist Fascism blocked traffic during rush hour. Now, they ended up getting off the charges for the most part. Like, most of them did not go to jail. I believe a couple of them pled. A lot of them just kind of waited it out. But this also led to the revelation that LAPD had been sending spies into their midst to spy on the revolutionary communists in LA uh, to see what they were up to and reporting back. And the, the funny thing about that report back is that LAPD found that they're not actually a danger, um, because they're not. They're more just incompetent than anything else. But what they've been doing is going around and starting fights, mainly at MAGA events, at high-profile places, trying to get, um, I guess, a critical mass for their revolution that they're promising to bring. They have written a new constitution for the Socialist Republic of the United States. It's an interesting one. Uh, they, they definitely claim to reject like reductionist politics and reductionist interpretations of Marxism, but don't really seem to skew very far away from them. Well, uh, so it's also debatable as to like what their conception of the American proletariat is, because they claim to be Maoists and claim to be looking for like a proletarian uprising. But is modern America really the seat of an agrarian proletariat? Like, is that what we have here? Or do we have kind of an advanced petty bourgeoisie? It's a lot of theoretical concerns with like what they babble and what they do. But mainly what they're trying to do is get press. And what they're trying to do is start fights. And we one, saw this at... One of the things that you see... like So having actually sat and listened to them talk at a group that I'm a part of, uh, you know, basically we were being held hostage by them at this presentation where we... Oh, they're, they're hardcore atheists, and you should definitely mention the affiliation of the group you're with, if not the name. Yeah, so the, the affiliation is basically like all of these uh, these these interfaith leaders that are, are coming from a wide variety of backgrounds, um, people from who are associated with, with groups like Ben the Ark and other organizations that are, are uniting... Uh, folks in the clergy with each other and, and across different backgrounds. There, there are folks who have uh, who are who are Muslim. There are folks who are Jewish. There are folks who are uh, Catholics, Protestants, all number of different faiths. We've had, we've had Hindu folks coming in to talk about uh, the the impacts on their life. Some of my favorite speakers that I've seen at this have been all have been Quakers. Uh, because they are just incredibly amazing with their pacifism, um, but th you know the 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 Revcom folks came in and they basically like yelled at us for an hour. And one of the things that really just stuck with me is that 
something that we talk about when we are, when we are talking about organizing folks and and getting people to wake up and realize like that the you know we need fundamental systemic changes in order to actually be able to start rectifying these kinds of mass injustices that we're facing like we talk about meeting people where they're at and listening to what their circumstances are and then trying to use those circumstances to help uh, you know make the connections and and flip those switches to to turn the lights on in, in areas that you know things that they haven't really necessarily seen of oh the reason why this part of my life sucks is because of this thing that's happening that the city state federal whatever government or our economic system is doing to us right those kinds of discussions with people where you really listen to where they're coming from and meet them there and then you know try to carry the conversation forward toward making that actual real connection with folks that is entirely antithetical to the way that revcom does their interactions with people they are all about confrontation they're all about you know militancy they love the idea of marching in uh information down the streets in they have a really weird like militaristic yeah, they have a really weird militaristic streak, yeah. and it's very off-putting, and it's almost silly to watch. It really is. Because they're clearly not very disciplined, but they want to put forward this picture of a very disciplined front because they are ultimately aiming for an armed struggle against the state. Yeah. Um, I don't know how they plan to win that one. Like, I really don't. Like, uh, I get their, the, their the idea confrontationalism that... confrontationalism is just... It's so... It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's dumbfounding to me. I do not understand how they hope to spread their message and recruit people to their ranks by be, by being so incredibly antagonistic and not like, I mean, it's just, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, it, it, it takes me, the story I was going to, I want to tell is uh, when we were out at Occupy Ice LA, there was a big rally uh, by Churla and the ACLU and like John Legend showed up and I believe Garcetti spoke there and it was a big hullabaloo. Like, a couple tens of thousands of people showed up to march from like MacArthur Park to the yeah. Metropolitan Detention Center, which is like LA's ice jail. Yeah. And it was, it was big. It and was. so as that rally ended, like the main organizers for that rally didn't do a great job of figuring out what they were going to do when the rally ended. Like they were like, our rally's over at three and by three 30, all of their people were gone, but there was still a couple thousand people that were hanging out there. Like, the Occupy Ice LA camp in coordination with the American Indian movement had held like an indigenous ceremony, had speakers, had uh, songs, had indigenous dances. Like it was a time to remember like we're on stolen land yeah, and absolutely. no one is illegal on stolen land. And so many people were sticking around for what was going on at the camp and what was going on on Aliso, which is kind of the street we were occupying. And as people were sort of bleeding off slowly, LAPD was like not happy with it. They had a couple of like semi-major streets still clogged up with pedestrians. And we know that LA hates, LAPD hates nothing more than a pedestrian in the street. You know, if you're not in a car, you're not allowed to be on the street in most of their officers' eyes. So LAPD kind of like was milling around, sort of lining up, kind of trying to figure out what they were going to do when the RCP folks rolled by. And they whipped the crowd into a frenzy because LAPD was trying to tell people to disperse. And RCP was like, screw that. Fight the state. Fight the police officers. We've got your back. And like LAPD got really freaked out by that and like lined up in a skirmish line and was like, now you have to go. And then Revcom just left. They just walked away. 
after telling a couple hundred people, no. we're going to help you as you fight against LAPD. Wow. They just left. And when somebody was That's like, insane. where are you going? They're like, oh, we have to go home now. It, and then it was left to us are at the camp kidding? to talk down LAPD. Like, we had to go get our police liaisons. We had to call people who were in other parts of town Holy to, shit. like, get their ass downtown immediately and go talk down LAPD and negotiate for what was going to happen so LAPD didn't just start swinging batons and firing tear gas at people. And ultimately, it worked out. We got everyone off the street. We led them on another march where we took them through downtown and got them out of LAPD's way. And then LAPD came and kind of swept up the street and did their stupid show of force and then walked right through our camp and, you know, left everyone alone and went home. But it really drove home for me the fact that these kind of pains to revolution and overthrowing a system when you don't have a plan for either the day of the revolution or the day after the revolution are incredibly stupid and counterproductive and that Revcom is picking up a lot of press and is getting a lot of pickup in the mainstream media because they make good visuals, right? Like if it bleeds, it leads. And Revcom is more than happy to provide that sort of straw man in these situations. So to kind of close this out, you know, when it comes to revolutionary communists, when it comes to the resist fascism stuff, be very wary of what it is that they're actually selling because they have a slogan, but that's about all they've got. And even beyond that slogan, there isn't much. Like, they don't have a plan for where they're going to go or what they're going to do. Revolution, like, the Revcom party has done, like, some good stuff. They do some organizing in jails and prisons. They have revolution books that sells books across this country and, like, is a good place to go and pick up some literature if you're looking for it um, and hard to find, like, leftist authors. At the same time, what is their actual aim and how do they want to achieve it? And there's not a good answer there. And as long as these antics keep escalating, it's going to lead to somebody getting hurt and it's going to lead to a reaction that's ultimately counterproductive to moving towards a better and more progressive and more stable society. You know, there's a lot to be said about whether or not we can reform capitalism, whether or not we overthrow it, what that's going to look like. I don't put a lot of faith in this idea of a one-generation transformational uprising, especially with an armed struggle against the militarized police state and the global military that the U.S. has. Absolutely. I don't think that that's a strategy that we should be pursuing or putting a lot of strength into at this moment. Fully agree. So that. uh, that's kind of going to wrap my little rant on uh, the Revcom and why I don't like them and why I think you should spend your time doing other stuff like local organizing. <laughs> and <laughs> guess what, Chris? I think you've got some opportunities to do some local organizing you can tell us about. <laughs> uh, well, so, uh, yeah, we've got, like I said, we've got this this vigil that takes place, again, with BLM every Wednesday in front of the Hall of Justice at 211 West Temple Street. Uh, this Wednesday, October 30th, as I said, we're going to be starting early. We're going to be spicing things up a little bit, changing things up a little bit, and it should be, uh, it should be a good time. So come on out. We're going to be starting at 3 um, the traditional BLM activities will probably be tar starting more around like 4.30 or so, but there are going to be uh, some incredibly powerful speakers that are going to be talking, uh, sharing their experiences, um, and that all should be going down starting probably by 3.30 or so. But get there early, uh, help us you know, bring the energy and, and the, the uh, crowd size to this that it absolutely deserves. We're talking about really demanding accountability from the sheriff's office and holding uh, their deputies to account when they do uh, exercise this, you know, gross over application of force. Um, so again, 
Wednesday, 3 p.m., uh, 211 West Temple. Uh, be there. I'll be there. Say hi. It'll be fun. We've also got... Uh, nice. This week, there's there's only going to be one Latu meeting. I was just checking their calendar, and they've got nothing scheduled for this week because it is uh, the week of Halloween. Um, but tonight, uh, from 7 to 9 p.m., this is Monday, October 28th, uh, if you're hearing this before then, uh, 6500 Sunset Boulevard, they've got their uh, Hollywood local that's going to be meeting. Other than that, no other meetings this week for Latu. And then, of course... Uh, as always, we've got Ground Game is going to be meeting up, even though that is going to be on uh, on the evening of Halloween itself. Uh, and unless I've missed something, we do still plan on meeting at uh, 7.30, as always, at the Ground Game LA office at 5617 Hollywood Boulevard uh, in the you know, in the heart of Hollywood, right? Just a couple of blocks from the Hollywood and Western Redline Metro stop. Uh, come by, say hi, uh, join us for some, some, you know, plugging in, getting involved in all the kind of activities that we're doing. And uh, it should be a lot of fun. It's always a lot of fun. So it'll be fun that week too. Nice, nice. So you want to take us out? Sure. As always, if y'all have any events that you want us to be publicizing, uh, taking part in, or generally being made aware of, please send us a message to the Ground Game LA Facebook page or send an email over to podcast at groundgamela.org. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Ground Game LA, at Bushido Squirrel, at Christopher Roth, over on Instagram at Ground Game LA, and of course, like and follow the Ground Game LA Facebook page for all of our live streamed content from actions around the city, as well as links from Knock. And of course, you can read some stories from our comrades and sometimes the two of us dabbling a bit over at Knock.LA. If you'd like to read the sources that we are citing or quoting for yourself, check out the list of articles cited in the episode description on SoundCloud, iTunes, uh, sorry, that's Apple Podcast. I need to change that in the script or wherever it is that you're listening to us rant and rave about local politics. Uh, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we did run pretty long today, so thanks for sticking around and, and, and bearing with us. This was a very heavy week of things. I mean, it was pretty much a monotopic uh, for the bulk of it, and and it's but it's also probably the most relevant topic for just about every single person in California. I mean, we're talking about massive, devastating wildfires from San Diego all the way through the the North Country and and uh, up and down the coast. Um, I'm really hoping that the uh, the mountains don't end up getting hit by these wildfires, but who knows what's going to happen. Uh, it's insane. This is the new normal. We are in a fucking climate emergency. Our elected officials need to act like it. We need to demand that they do something um, or just kick yep. them out of office. And uh, I'm kind of inclined yeah. toward the latter at this point because they just they just aren't doing anything. And they just they continue to not do anything. So uh, thank you again uh, for tuning in and listening to us. It's uh, always helpful for me to be able to be a part of this, and I hope that you get something out of it, too. Bushido? Thank you all very much for listening. Take care of each other. Be safe. Uh, it's going to be a very, very long week, uh, but we're all going to get through this. Have yourself a good one.
Thirty and more. Thirty and more. Thirty and more. 